You're listening to Branch Out by Sycamore. Best ER docs are good, fast, and nice. Really easy to be two out of the three. Very difficult to be all three. So you can be good and fast, maybe not so nice. You can be good and nice, maybe not so fast. Everybody should strive to be all three. I'm Larson Hicks, CEO of Sycamore, and welcome to Branch Out, where I chat with healthcare professionals about broad-reaching topics like their careers in medicine, hobbies and pursuits outside the hospital, and everything in between. On this episode, I'm joined by David Goldwag, an EM medical director who's transitioned to primarily locum's work. He shares great insights from his experiences as a medical director and also about his lifelong passion for music and his side hustle recording and producing music. It's my joy and honor to present to you Dr. David Goldway. How are you today? I'm good. Good. It's great to talk to you. We've spoken recently and really enjoyed our conversation. look forward to our conversation today. We did want to just start with just background. Sycamore is a company that's all about physicians first and about trying to give physicians more autonomy and more independence and trying to start a movement to have physicians sort of take their specialties back, um, starting with emergency medicine, which is our, our, uh, our primary focus. And, and so part of that is just, you know, giving, giving physicians the opportunity to tell their stories and share you know, their, their journey and their path with, with other physicians. Uh, because it seems I think to a lot of folks that there's kind of one or two approved, you know, ways to do it. And, uh, and of course we don't believe that's, that's true. And, uh, and your story I think is really interesting. You've done a lot with your career. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I'd love to start just hearing about your background and, and, uh, and, and we can get into more of the weeds of, of, uh, of the, uh, the ins and outs of emergency medicine today, but, but how did you, how did you, uh, find yourself, um, in medical school and, and, uh, pursuing a career as a physician? So my father was a, was a family doc. Uh, we grew up, I grew up on the East coast uh, in a little town in, uh, upstate or, uh, in Westchester County, New York called Croton on Hudson. And he was a, a family physician, um, and he used to take me out on uh, house calls and stuff. So when I was a little kid, there's a picture of me uh, with my father's doctor bag. I, I probably was about seven years old, you know, uh, with a tongue depressor. So a lot of people in the family were like, you know, hey, he's destined to be a doctor. Um, but interestingly enough, I, I was turned off to medicine by uh, my college experience. Um, I went to a pretty... Uh, um, high tech uh, college, UC San Diego, very uh, research oriented. Uh, I was a science, uh, you know, um, major, and I always liked science. So I ended up, you know, going there with a uh, undergraduate um, program in biochemistry. But the the people that I disliked the most as an undergraduate were all the pre meds. So okay, <laughs> I actually kind of was turned off to medical school and. Uh, 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 you know, I guess I had this vision of my father who was like, you know, the down home family doctor. And, uh, I didn't see any of the, that happening, you know, at UCSD. Now in retrospect, uh, it was mostly, I guess, because of what UCSD was like, but at the time as an undergraduate, I said, you know, I don't want to do this. So, uh, I did a lot of research and, uh, I came out of uh, medical or undergraduate 
with a degree in biochemistry and, and kind of figured I would end up as a research guy. And uh, I actually went and did some research uh, in a lab. And I, it just was a timing thing in that when I graduated, the research budgets were getting cut everywhere. And all these people were like bailing out of research and, and they were just saying, you know, like, that's the worst place to go. So I, I really had a kind of a life crisis pretty early on, even though I was successful in school, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my father never really in, uh, pushed me to medicine, uh, you know, and he and I were very similar uh, as personalities. So it wasn't that we didn't have a close relationship. It was just, a, I think that was just his, you know, his style was not to say, here's what you need to do, or, uh, you know, he said, just do what you like. Um, and that was, you know, I loved research, but it was like not, uh, it was not doable. So, uh, so I took a year off. Uh, I played music on the street in uh, San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, like that turned out not to be a, a viable career choice. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun, but it wasn't like I was going to, you know, I barely survived. So I was uh, I was doing that, and um, I was I guess I was in the middle of doing that when a friend of mine contacted me, and he said uh, he knew me from college. He was actually one of my college roommates, and he said, "Hey, uh, I've discovered this thing called osteopathic medicine," um, and I he knew that I was really disillusioned with uh, you know the kind of cutthroat sort of personalities that I, uh, you know, both of us really had had been around at U UCSD. And he said, hey, you should come check out the school because they're, you know, more about kind of holistic medicine and and more about what you, you know, family, family docs do, taking care of the whole family, doing all that stuff. So I actually went down to uh, the school he was at. It was in um, Pomona at the time, College of Osteopathic Medicine. And uh, he had set up an interview with me, uh, with the dean, who, uh, you know, basically told me, listen, you know, you're the kind of guy we want. You have really good grades. You're a science guy. And uh, if you apply, you'll get in. Basically that. Yeah. You know I mean, <laughs> like, so I didn't. Yeah. I had a very different path. You know, everybody else, you know, and, and particularly different than the cutthroat guys, you know, at, at college. I mean, there were guys there that were spitting in other guys' science experiments so that they, you know, could get a better grade because it was on a curve. You know, it was like crazy stuff. And so, you, you know, this here's a guy telling me, listen, you know, you're the kind of guy we want. Uh, you don't have to do any of that. You know, just go through the application, you know, do, put your application in and, and we'll get you in. And so I, I basically just kind of went to medical school because uh, it was the next step for me. And it was so easy. You had a little bit of a, of a, of a journey leading up to it and took a couple twists and turns. Uh, but you found yourself still, it sounds like still relatively young, um, going to medical school. And I took a year off. So I was, you know, I wasn't, uh, out of the loop, so to speak. Um, and then interestingly enough, I ended up not going to the school where the guy said, I'll get you in. I, I took another leap and I did my first year in New England just because uh, it just, again, that's me. You know, I'm uh, at the time, particularly, I was very, uh, very much kind of, you know, leap first and think later kind of guy. 
Uh, and so I went to the University of New England just because uh, I visited a friend there and it just seemed like a really cool place. Um, I subsequently ended up back at, at uh, the, the school in California, and that's where I graduated from. What did you do after medical school? Did you start in, in uh, towards a residency or, or did you go straight into practice? Within medical school, I uh, kind of changed uh, my focus a little bit. I, I was a pretty much oriented towards holistic medicine and family practice and general practice. And then I got into, uh, when I got into school, and on my rotations, I really enjoyed the more technical aspects of medicine. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed a lot of it. There was very little I didn't like. And that was one of the problems. I kind of liked everything. But I liked the intensive, you know, technical part of medicine. And, and you know, my I, I do a lot of technical stuff in my outside interests. And so, you know, being a family doc... Um, it, it, it seemed a little boring, potentially. So I, I ended up, you know, going into uh, uh, through medical school, actually kind of refining what I wanted to do. And uh, it, it turned out I wanted to do a more, you know, uh, um, I would say involved or intensive kind of hands-on part of, of medicine. So I actually did a little bit of surgery uh, and then transitioned from that and ended up in emergency medicine. Uh, but I did go directly out of uh, out of school right into a residency. And I was the first group. Uh, they were changing uh, ER residencies at the time. Uh, so I was the first group I had to do four years. So I did a rotating internship in Detroit uh, at a big osteopathic uh, hospital and then subsequently entered as a PGY two in uh, emergency medicine, but I went two to four. So I did four total years of postgraduate um, training. So those in the, in the earlier days of, uh, of, of emergency medicine residency programs for, for, uh, for DOs, is that, is that what you're saying? I think I might've been the first DO that was accepted into the program that I went to, uh, which was an allopathic program, an MD program. I, I, uh, through school, uh, and through my internship, I realized that I really wanted to be well trained. Uh, that going to a, a residency was not a you know minor de uh, decision. You needed to really go research and go someplace that was going to give you the skills that you uh, would need. And uh, not every residency did that. And a lot of the DO programs were in uh, more rural areas. It didn't have the kind of intensive experience that I wanted. I was very interested in trauma. And so uh, I wanted to go someplace that had a, a, a big trauma experience. Um, and so those, those residencies tended, uh, or the allopathic or MD residencies tended to be in those locations. So I applied to a couple of those and I got into uh, Bakersfield, which was a MD residency, but I believe I might've been the first DO they accepted. What did your career path look like after that? Where did you, where did you start uh, your first uh, attending uh, job. The residency was great. I mean, it was brutal. Um, it was an urban uh, kind of uh, location. Actually, it was the county hospital for, for the whole area. We just saw everything there. So, uh, you know, I really wanted to continue that kind of intensive experience, but I didn't want to live in Bakersfield. Bakersfield, tough place to live. Uh, it's very, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, rural. It, it, it's not rural. It's just uh, very isolated. Uh, and it was, you know, Central Valley and, 
you know, it was like we wanted to go someplace green and lush. So we ended up going to the Bay Area, my wife and I. And um, I, I went out of residency to one job and stayed there for almost 17 years. So uh, a little unusual. Yeah. I, and in that hospital, which was a, a urban trauma center, it wasn't a huge department, um, but I moved my way up uh, the ladder, so to speak. So I started, uh, you know, as a staff doc and then eventually I became uh, involved in hospital leadership. I was uh, the uh, vice chief of staff and um, involved in a lot of uh, uh, hospital um, administrative stuff. I became the department chair. Um, and there was a lot of uh, turnover. Uh, there was a lot of contract issues. So I got a, um, a snootful at a young age of the politics of emergency medicine, the politics of hospitals. Um, and so uh, I think I got an education that was a, a little bit unique in that not just was I learning emergency medicine, but I was learning uh, the politics of medicine in general. What were the politics like then? And, and I mean, this is kind of jumping ahead uh, because, and, and maybe you can, you can fill us in on the gaps in between, you know, then and now, but, but what, what were the, um, how have you seen the politics of emergency medicine change over your career? What was interesting about that time period was this was the early days of the beginning of the mega groups. And um, I had an interesting career because when I was a resident, I used to moonlight up and down the central coast of uh, uh, or sorry, the central valley of uh, California. And those were all these tiny little hospitals run by uh, a couple of groups. And uh, those groups were the, uh, the the type of group that kind of would just find a warm body and throw them in there. And that's what um, sort of uh, was the, uh, the, the impetus for uh, the Phoenix to write The Rape of Emergency Medicine. And uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I crossed paths with him during that time period because I was in those hospitals. Uh, and when he wrote the book, it, yeah, I knew exactly what he was talking about. These contract groups were um, coming along and basically going to the hospitals and saying, listen, you know, I know it's a problem for you to try and uh, staff your department. So we'll just take over that responsibility and then we'll, you know, provide the docs for you. And, and the hospitals just jumped at it. You know, they were just like, uh, yeah, that's great. Take this big headache off of our plate. And uh, but then the groups were, you know, finding anybody they could find. Um, and so that was starting to happen during when I was in training. And then when I got out in practice, I joined a group that had a partnership track and I was not, there was only five partners. And then, you know, I worked there for a, a five years and then it was me and another guy and we weren't going to be partners. And so we were starting to get kind of like, Hey, you know, what's the deal. And then that group sold to what was at that time MCARE. And so, uh, this is a very interesting story. So I was working a night shift. And at that time, MCARE, I believe, was on the NASDAQ. And I was just looking at the, the NASDAQ had an online, this is very early days of, you know, the web, and, and I, the NASDAQ was online. And so you could see the prospecti for the companies. So I went, hey, here's MCARE's listed on the NASDAQ. Let's just see what they're all about, because I had no idea you know, who they were, what they were all about. I knew they were out of, I think, out of Texas at the time. So I go look, and sure enough, it tells me online what their 
pers- it's their prospectus, I guess, which lists their their um, purchases and whatever. And there is the purchase of my group all listed there for the amount of money it was. And so I call up the other senior non-partner and I said, hey, you know, the partners just sold us for, I, I forget the, the amount, but it was some staggering amount of money that they got. And uh, so, and sure enough, you know, we were quote sold and that meant the whole group, all the docs. And the next thing we know is these guys from Texas show up and they're like, hey, you know, it's going to be all great uh, peaches and cream and and uh, we'll fly it to Texas. And um, so they did that. And then we had a big meeting. I took our, uh, our uh, significant others with us and my wife. I remember is another story because I put her on a bus and took her shopping uh, to these really upscale, you know, stores in Dallas. And my wife is not an upscale shopper. She hated every minute of it. And meanwhile, so they're giving us the whole, you know, spiel about what MCARE is all about. And she's sitting on this bus with all these women um, and significant others, you know, uh, shopping. So um, that that was those days. And, you know, there was a lot of, hey, we're going to do this better. And, and I was, you know, I'm a glass half um, full kind of guy. And so I, I, I really was thinking... You know, maybe it's going to be great. And uh, it turned out not to be great. Right. You know, uh, they they lost. There, so there was, I think, four contracts that were sold within six months or, wow. or a short time period thereafter. They had lost two. And then they, the performance at our contract was, started uh, deteriorating significantly. Uh, they were, you know, uh, not able to recruit they were cutting back and the next thing i know the hospital comes to me and says hey we want to boot this this uh group out but we want to keep you and your guys you know what do you want to do and i had been out in practice only five years and so i I really didn't have a tremendous amount of um you know uh background infrastructure knowledge on how to do emergency medicine. You know, I was really pretty much uh, just a, a, you know, straightforward uh, frontline clinical guy. But I'd had some administrative experience a little bit at that time. And I ran operations for the department. So I said, okay, let's just go find a better group because I can't do this myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's mm-hmm. what we did. And uh, we joined uh, CEP, which was at that time a giant partnership and had a great reputation. Um, and so that's what we did. And I became the director sort of under battlefield conditions. And, you know, they, Interesting. yeah. And then uh, I was, you know, given some assistance by, uh, by uh, the CEP, but you know, the, this transition happened under tremendously difficult circumstances. Uh, hospital had been bought by a for-profit group and a uh, big hospital chain. And there was a lot of pressure on us to perform better. And, you know, once they rolled the contract over, they were immediately like, okay, what are you doing to do a better job? Uh, and I was overwhelmed. I was completely overwhelmed. And uh, so, so, but um, I think I told you this story. Uh, the hospital brought in a consultant physician who basically, you know, just drove me absolutely crazy just every day was something new i was gonna have to do and and i just i thought this guy guy this guy's torturing me 
subsequently we've become really good friends or we became really good friends because everything he was doing was trying to fix the place quickly. And he had a great, he had a great experience and knowledge on how to do things the way that uh, if you had to rebuild the hospital from scratch and make it safe and, and efficient and, and really dot all the I's and cross all the T's, you know, really have a Jayco, uh, uh, um, you know, everything using Jayco standards and all that. So he, that's what he did. And he taught me that. And so over a short time period, uh, or, or not so short, we, we really brought our department uh, from a real chaos. Uh, and we went from being, you know, really at the bottom of the heap amongst the HCA hospitals. That was the for-profit that, 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 uh, bought us. We, we, we were number like eight at some point. Yeah. And, and, and I got a lot of positive attention for that. And, um, it's really was the launching pad for my career. And uh, uh, the gentleman who I, I would love to thank, his name is Peter Leeson. He's still around and he's in California. I haven't seen him in years. But um, Peter really, really gave me a wealth of knowledge that almost nobody else really, uh, except I guess very similar to a chief medical officer level of knowledge. Uh, and that's what I used to kind of craft the department. And then we got a lot of positive feedback for it within the HCA uh, uh, network. And I got a lot of personal attention for that as being, you know, uh, a guy who could uh, make things happen, um, which in all honesty, it was a lot of Peter. Can you give us a, a, a taste of what, what, what kinds of knowledge he was passing on and, and, and um, you know, how does, how does another physician today go about getting that kind of knowledge outside of getting a mentor like, like, like yours. He's just a really, really knowledgeable guy. I mean, he knows, he reads, reads, you know, the stuff like how do you handle, you know, disruptive physicians? How, what, you know, what is patient safety? How do you, how do you craft that? I mean, there's all these things that have become big, big focuses of attention since the publication of the, of the, uh, you know, the national study on patient safety. Um, he was way out in front of all that. So all those things on, you know, how you do patient safety and how you, so what was interesting is he would say, here's how you're supposed to do it. And then my job was to translate that into something that was practically doable in the department. And then we would do that together because, you know, not everything is immediately like off the shelf, you know, thing. You just, you can't just plop it in department. There's, and, and this is one of the tenets that I've learned over doing a, a lot of startups and, and turnarounds is that every department is, is different in, in operations and infrastructure, but the basic principles are the same. So, uh, so it was, it was really interesting, you know, here, I'll tell you a funny story about him. So his first thing that he did to me was like, okay. And this was pre, uh, uh, electronic health records. So everything was on paper. And he said, your paper, you know, follow through is terrible. The charts are all over the place. So he, he he created this thing called the pink sheet, and a pink sheet was went on the front of every chart and had a checkoff box, and the physicians had to check all the boxes and then sign it. And and these pink sheets, people just hated them. I mean, they were like the the you know like the, because they didn't do anything other than torture you about you know running around the department and trying to collect up everything so you could check the box. And, uh, and so one day I went to his office and I go, Hey, you know, the doctors are killing me with this, these pink sheets. 
what are you doing with them? And he, he looks at me and he goes, not doing anything with them. I go, so why are we doing that? And he said, so your behavior changes. And he said, so if your behavior changes and you're, and you, 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 you know, you start getting these standards, you don't need to do the peak sheets anymore. You know? And it was like, so it was human, you know, and that, that was a lesson in, in, in behavior, you know, and how do you, how do you change behaviors and stuff like that? And so, so those pink sheets, I, you know, that was one of my, he probably doesn't even remember that, but for me, it was like, those pink sheets were like big eye opener. Yeah. But he, so he, he restructured the entire hospital and he changed the, the, the way that the hospital functioned. And he brought the physicians, all the physicians together uh, to work collaboratively, which wasn't the easiest thing to do, you know, uh, amongst the specialties. And he used me as the tip of his spear on, on all of that. So uh, a lot of times, so I'm, I actually, you know, my career was advanced as I took on new roles so that he could, you know, kind of affect these changes at different levels. So I became, you know, I was already the department director. I became the head of medicine and then I became the vice chief of staff and the vice chief of staff at the hospital was in charge of hospital quality. So through my being in that role, he had somebody that he knew how to work with and we instituted a, a ton of, of uh, collaborative things. For example, we talked about uh, problems that happened, cases that were uh, problem cases amongst all the specialties. So all the medical specialties were in one group and all the surgical specialties, and that had never happened before. So the departments were very wary of bringing up and airing their dirty laundry in these groups. And he used me as a physician to say to the other docs, listen, if it's a specialty specific problem, like you're a neurosurgeon and something went wrong in your surgery, nobody in the room is going to know what you're talking about. But if you're a neurosurgeon and you don't round on a patient that every day, that's a violation of a, a standard. It doesn't take a neurosurgeon to figure out that that's not right. So the problems that he said, if it's a, you know, a, a specialty specific problem that can be handled within, you know, that little specialty. And then you guys figure out whether there's a problem there or not. But the problems that the hospital had more than anything were things that every doctor knew was wrong. Like if you don't write your notes, you don't finish your charts, you know, you, you know, you're nasty to the nurses, that stuff that it doesn't matter what specialty art. So those were things that he brought up that you know, I was in charge of those committees. And uh, you know, when we started, it was it was difficult. I remember the first meeting once, nobody said anything. Everybody just sat, you know, in a big, and Peter did all the talking and, you know, and then he would turn to me and go, you know, what do you think? And I would be like, uh, I think it's a great idea, Peter. <laughs> and, you know, and the other guys were, knew me and they were, they respected me as a doctor. And, and, and also, you know, I've been in the hospital for a long time. And so, over time, it just it, it evolved and, and it became very effective. Now, subsequently, that that kind of structure doesn't exist in a lot of hospitals. It did in that hospital, uh, but but it was uh, it was and it was something that the Joint Commission loved. When the Joint Commission came to our hospital after Peter had been there for a while, 
they would walk around and go, oh, Peter did this. This is great. They knew him. It sounds like you've also had a lot of other uh, uh, other experiences, uh, moonlighting and and in other um, hospitals, other working with other groups. Um, I think you, you mentioned um, that you've worked for, for virtually all of the major uh, medical groups. Um, that kind of experience is not you, you called it political earlier. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a level of political, um, skill that you have to have in order to be able to effectively turn a a program around. Um, how do you get that kind of experience? You know, how, how does a, how does a younger doctor, you know, get that kind of experience or find their way into that kind of knowledge? So there's a good way to do it. And then there's a way I did it. A way I did is I made mistakes. You know, uh, you have to be careful about uh, what you say and who you say it to. And uh, so that's the politics part of it. Um, I'm a a believer in, you know, in order to affect real change, you have to be uh, able to accept the reality of the situation. Now, a lot of hospital administrators either don't have the capability of, of understanding, you know, really what's going on or don't want to know. And, and some don't. Some do. I mean, they're, they're, I've run across some great administrators in my time who really do say, yeah, tell me how, how it really is. And then, you know, I, I, I have two tenets. Uh, one of them is tell the truth, you know, uh, or, or at least know the, know the truth. You know, then you have to figure out how to how to voice it. Number two, don't really bring anything to an administrator without a solution. So, so you, you, you know, to say to him, well, you you know, your ER is really broke, or ED is really broken. Okay, they may already know that. So, you know, what you really want to do is say, well, there, you know, you got some challenges in your ED. There's no such thing as emergency department that that is fixed and runs and works all the time. Just doesn't happen. So the question is, you know, how, what's the degree of dysfunction and, and how fixable is it? Um, there's a lot of things you can't fix. Geography, you know, some departments are challenged by their floor plan. And, you know, you go to an administrator and say, oh, well, you really need to rebuild your emergency department. Well, that's, you know, $20 million. So that's not going to happen. So, that's one of my skill sets is being able to look uh, at something creatively and say, okay, well, they're not going to spend 20 million. So what do we need to do to get $20 million worth of improvement for, you know, nothing <laughs> or, 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 or minor, you know, kind of investment. So, so those are two things. It's critically important that you, that you're able to, to give them, you know, a sense that, uh, that you've got a solution in your, and it's sort of a group effort to fix it. So you recently, I mean, in the not too distant past here, um, started doing more locums work. It sounds like you moonlighted some over the years, but, but until how recently was it that you started doing locums in a more, uh, consistent, um, capacity? I did the, the director thing and the, and the turnaround for almost 27, 28 years. And, you know, reached a point where um, it was getting more and more difficult. And I, I'm not sure whether it was more difficult or I was just getting, you know, older and, and, and at the point where I, 
you know, I'd been around it so much that it was starting to, uh, to really, uh, uh, hit. And there was a increasing, and this is the sad part of, you know, medicine currently, there's just an increasing focus on finances, which is, I'm not Pollyanna. I, there's always been a focus on finances, but there's a balance. And when you ba tip the balance all the way to, you know, listen, everything has to be about the dollar, uh, then it becomes very difficult as a director because you're, you are, the, the directorship in a contract group environment, you're caught between two masters. You're ser serving the hospital master and you're serving the group and the group pays your salary. And so if you don't, you know, satisfy them, uh, the hospital really typically doesn't do much, you know, to protect you from the group saying, well, listen, you're not doing a good job. So, uh, you know, time to go. And I, it got to a point where uh, <clears throat> I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't really um, enamored of fighting that battle continuously. So, you know, I, I had always prided myself on my clinical uh, abilities. And, you know, I wasn't really, I had always worked clinically as a director, but not a lot. You know, I would work six shifts a month, something like that, enough to keep my skill set up. I wasn't really sure what it was going to be like working full time. So uh, I, I went out into the locums world with, I was a little not sure, but you know, it turned out I enjoyed it uh, because the problems exist everywhere. But if you go in as a clinician, really, you know, your job's to do the best job you can with what you got. And and not really take on, there's a tremendous amount of stress uh, over working in a department as a director where there's problems. Because A, there's nobody to go to because you're the guy. And B, you gotta look like you're not frustrated because you're the, you're the guy. <laughs> so people well, hate it when the director loses his mind and, uh, so there's a tremendous amount of pressure on you. You know, listen, you got to look like this is, isn't all collapsing around you. Uh, and, and, and so uh, that becomes a, a stress. If you're just a clinical guy, uh, not that you can lose your, your cool, but it's not your responsibility to fix it. You know, you, do the, you have to do the best you can with the, with the clinical situation that you have, but then, you, you know, you pass along somebody else. Prior to working, doing locums yourself and, and then now being on the other side of it, what, what, um, what were your expectations? What were your experiences before as a director with locums, uh, providers in general? What, what, what was your impression of them as kind of a, uh, you know, as, as a category of physician or, 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 um, yeah. What was generally your experience with locums physicians in the past? Well, so as a director, locums is a problem. I mean, because the ideal circumstance and, and the success I had in the past uh, a lot of times was if you were able to uh, get a core group of docs uh, to work at a facility regularly, they perform at a much higher level. So that's your, that's your ideal. And that's what I achieved on numerous occasions. Uh, so if, if you're with a contract group that has trouble uh, recruiting, then you're stuck, you know, trying to uh, fill the because you got to cover the shift. So unless you want to do it yourself, you know, you got to uh, you got to find docs. In the older days, uh, the doctors that you would find working locums typically weren't the strongest, and so then you had challenges. Now, even a strong doc has to learn your facility. So for a director, and I took this very seriously. You know, I did a, a very 
at all my sites had a very involved uh, orientation manual and spent time with the doctors on, uh, you know, for a number of years, I worked every shift with a new physician. Uh, and it was the first, I believe two to three shifts were me, which you know, I don't like much, but if you've got three new locums coming in, now you're working a whole bunch of extra shifts uh, just to get them oriented. And then if they don't work out, then you've got holes in your schedule. So, you know, so a very interesting thing happened at my last facility. I started recognizing that the locums, and those were internal, you know, locums for the uh, the contract groups. They're some of the stronger docs. Uh, and I was, it was that was a real change uh, that some of these docs came in. They were highly uh, qualified, trained. Uh, they did a really good job. Um, they, you know, the nurses, uh, you know, would recognize them as skilled providers. They were able to communicate well uh, and adapt uh, into the situation. So when I went out as a locums and I did three startups on the first day, starting out with no orientation. So I, as a, as a director, so, you know, go to go in as a locum seemed, you know, relatively easy, uh, but it wasn't necessarily easy. I mean, you, you go in and you're, you don't know the facility, you don't know the consultants, you don't know, you know, really anything about how the infrastructure works, the workflow. Uh, and so you got to make it up without looking lost and, and, and you also want to be productive. So, it's a skill. Uh, and I think that that is the lesson that I've learned being a locums. Uh, and it, and for going forward, the, the new world of locums, people have to recognize that it, it's a skill. Uh, they should learn how to do it if they're going to do locums. Um, and I think there are like, like, you know, with your company, there are some innovative ways that people can do this. And, uh, and it is, uh, it, it's sort of evolving. It's an evolving kind of um, uh, part of medicine. You mentioned earlier, you can't change your geography, right? And so there's a lot of places in this country today that just geographically are at a disadvantage for recruiting high quality, permanent, full-time doctors. And, um, and in those scenarios, locums has always been the only solution um, and, and also a, 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 a subpar solution. You've, you've, you were getting... Um, you're getting doctors that weren't necessarily the highest caliber doctors, uh, most qualified, right? Well, so I knew this from residency because, again, I worked, like I was saying, in the Central Valley where there was a lot of these small hospitals that were in these unbelievably rural communities, and they weren't able to really recruit. And and I recognize it is uh, the sort of, I don't know what the word is, it's, it's the, it's the, uh, the, not it's not really an ugly part of emergency medicine. It's just a realistic part of emergency medicine is that you train people and then they tend to want to go for the higher paying jobs, which are in urban suburban communities. Whereas, and here's a perfect example. My residency was one of those residencies where you did everything. I mean, you really learned as an emergency physician how to do orthopedics. I do all my own fracture reductions. I do procedures that, you know, facial, you know, things that, that should be done in an emergency department, I can do. That's not true of all residents and all places don't train people, you know, for that, but I was trained that way. So I 
I'm the kind of guy that if I'm in a rural community that doesn't have a plastic surgeon, and can I do a good job of repairing a facial wound, you know, and I know my limitations, um, versus saying to a community, well, you, you just don't, you're not going to get anybody, uh, or uh, somebody who's capable of, of doing uh, procedures uh, where there isn't a ton of consultants. And, and you know, so the problem is, in the past, those communities couldn't pay to get the trained physicians to show up there. And so what ended up happening is they would find locums who either weren't emergency medicine trained or, you know, had some other problems and weren't the high quality docs. So I think that still exists to some degree, you know, and if you're, if you're in a, a rural community and you don't have a bunch of subspecialists available, uh, you know, the, I used to say the emergency medicine is the first 30 minutes of every specialty. So you have to be able to do the first 30 minutes of every specialty. If you have a consultant in the hospital, that's great that you can refer to or work with. That's, you know, phenomenal. But if you're in a rural community and the consultant is, you know, a, a transfer away or, you know, far away, you have to have the skill to be able to maybe do the first hour, you know, of, of, or longer. So, so that, you know, the rural hospitals have always been challenged with how do you, how do you find those people and how do you get them to come and, uh, you know, and and provide that kind of service in emergency medicine it's the same as in, a, in every other um, area of, of business um, you tend to get what you pay for and um, and the this sort of unnatural problem that exists um, or dynamic that exists in locums is that, that that that's not necessarily true you may be paying a premium rate um, you know, a, a much higher rate per hour than you would than you would ever pay um, a full time uh, physician. Uh, but um, but the locums company typically is keeping a, a, a very large percentage of that, and 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 they may be actually getting a very inexpensive doctor um, to fill those shifts. It's very difficult to, you know, to evaluate somebody and say, well, they're going to be a good doctor. I mean, I've gotten good at it over the years because I've recruited many physicians and PAs and NPs, you know, to work in departments. And so you look at their CVs and from their CV, can you determine, well, has this person, you know, been well-trained and have they been successful in the past where they've gone? I don't know. And I, my guess is that the large uh, locums agencies don't do a lot of that. And it really does sometimes take a physician or somebody who's got a skill set at being able to read a CV to be able to say, well, you know, this guy might be a problem. Uh, I think the locums, you know, like a lot of companies that sign contracts, you know, that have, uh, you know, they got to fulfill the contract. Uh, like, oh, well, you know, we'll try this guy out and we'll see what happens. And so that's, I was never a person that would take that attitude into my department. You know, I wasn't big. Now, did that mean I had problem people? Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, I, it was rare that I took somebody on that, that I said, well, you know, uh, I think this person might have a problem. We'll just kind of watch them really closely. Um, but you know, you, it's, so 
I think the locums companies, and it's true to some degree to the, the contract groups, uh, you know, if a hospital has trouble, then there's usually a reason they have trouble. They're either geographically, you know, isolated, uh, they, you know, it's tough to get people to go there. The hospital itself has a problem infrastructure wise, the department has a problem. Um, so those places, the places that run pretty well, don't roll over contracts typically, uh, maybe no, don't even have a need for locums. But the hospitals that do, uh, they do usually have some issues. And so then the question becomes, what is the issue? You know, is if it's just purely geographic, that's fixable, you know, by offering enough for people to get there. If there's problems in the department, I think that's where we get back to that original thing where I talked about, about being honest with, you know, realistic and honest. So, you know, the administration of the hospital, they have to be honest with themselves. Do they have a problem? You know, do they have a problem? They may not know what the problem is. I mean, there's lots of consultant groups out there that that are, uh, you know, effective at coming in and trying to find problems. Most of the consulting groups don't, I, I find not to be really great at coming up with solutions. They're really good at coming up with problems. You know, find, finding creative solutions are not always easy, but the first step is recognizing, okay, we have a problem, figuring out, you know, what do we think this problem is? And then, you know, you have to create a plan which has a realistic chance of success. And and then you have to institute that plan. And, and, and it usually is not a, a quick fix. This is a, a a very political sort of question to ask, but, um, but I'll go ahead and ask it. Um, do you think that by and large contract management groups are more often than not part of the problem or part of the solution? Yeah, that's a little bit of a loaded question, but so I've worked like I, you know, we said before, I work for a lot of contract groups. I will tell you that there are some really great people working in the contract group world. The challenge for, for the contract groups is that they, is their, um, their business infrastructure is uh, profit oriented. Um, now, you know, I don't want to sound Pollyanna and say that I, you know, like I didn't, I don't go to work for the glory of work and to, you know, to help humanity. I, I love helping people, but I got to, you know, support my family. So, so yeah, making money is a reality of our, uh, of our, uh, you know, the way we live. So I've never been one to really, you know, say, oh, it's all about money, but these groups are driven in a hierarchical way by people up the ladder at some point who don't have connection down the line with the a particular contract and it becomes sort of okay well the, you know the group has to make a certain bottom line and if you don't make the bottom line then you know how do you fix that now in emergency medicine you don't have a lot of control of your inflow so you don't have control over the actual patients coming in. You kind of don't have a tremendous amount of control over over what the insurance companies are going to pay you. I mean, you can a little bit. There, you know, you can do some stuff, better documentation, all that jazz. But you know, at the end of the day, the insurance companies kind of control that to some degree. So you don't have a lot of money coming in. You don't have control of a lot of money coming in the front door. So what is it that you have control over? Well, it's how much overhead, which is staffing. So that's a tough equation. If all of a sudden you start going 
the other way and it's like, oh, well, we're losing money. How do we save money? You're not going to make more money. You're, you, so you got to cut staffing. That's where the challenge now becomes. Now, here's a, here's here's the difference. So here's the difference between a contract group and a hospital-based group. So I'm the director. We'll play a scenario. So all of a sudden, our volume drops. Like, uh, let's say the COVID crisis. Volume drops significantly. Never happened before. Never seen it before. Um, 40% volume drop. So under a contract group, the you know the volume drops. There's a decision made at the contract level. Uh, all right, we have to cut staffing. So wacko, they they cut it, and it and it comes from above, and it comes maybe down to a, a region or you know whatever it is. It just sort of you know cut everything. Um, if you're a local hospital group and you have a good relationship with your administration, you go to your administration early and you say we're in trouble because. You know, you know, whether the hospital was paying our salary or we're a, a local democratic group, you know, we, we have 40 percent decrease in our income. You know, we're not, that's not sustainable. Then you work with the hospital and you say, OK, here's what we're going to do. And we're going to try and be as creative as we can to serve the public and serve the hospital while not, you know, going out of business. Uh, it's subtle uh, difference, but. The difference is you you're dealing directly with one versus the other. The director's caught between a rock and a hard place, um, and the hospital you know may understand that because they're losing money too. But they're, they're you you got two different entities as opposed to dealing you know with the directly with one. We see this all the time um, in the locums world where there's there's this um, there's this. Um, instinct to treat locums physicians as kind of the sacrificial lamb scapegoat, you know, for any sort of problem and go, you know, there's a problem. Let's just fire the locums. And, um, and you can only do that because you don't have a relationship with them and you've, and you've never really taken, um, ownership of that physician's performance and, and responsibility for it. Um, and, and, and to me, a world where, you know, like you're describing a world where there's a more intimate um, connection and knowledge of all of the players um, and, and all also the problems in the community. Um, and, and I think more importantly, there, there's actual skin in the game uh, by all the parties uh, that are involved in making the decisions. Um, that, that changes the dynamic, I think, tremendously um, from one where like you said, we're looking at, at spreadsheets, we're looking at profit margins, and we're looking at categories um, to, to trim um, and, and, and not necessarily um, thinking creatively about your particular situation, your particular staff, um, and, and what other levers you might be able to pull um, and get creative um, locally uh, to, solve, to address the problem. Ultimately, all medicine is, is a human business. Um, but particularly emergency medicine, people are in crisis. It's a, you know, it's a human related process. Uh, the emergency department is the interface between the hospital and the community many, many times. Um, you know, and it, the more that administrators understand how the emergency department is interfacing with the community, the better they are. And, and here's another one of my little things is that it's not about metrics that everybody looks at. Everybody looks at, you know, 
satisfaction and throughput metrics and goes, that's a measure of the of the department success. Yeah, that is a factor, but it is not, you can't tell the success or failure of a department based on looking at those metrics. There's there they're very complex reasons why those things don't really reflect what's going on. Um, I think in some respects they're measurable and that's why people get very fixated on them. And so it's easier to, to, to address something that's measurable than, than uh, things that aren't so measurable, but you can, you can, uh, you can have a tail wagging the dog kind of, scenario if you're chasing metrics and and that's your measurement uh and, oh we're gonna get a new group in because they promise us that you know these metrics will be met um i think you know and again i'm a little pollyanna uh, about this but i i think long-term stability success for the institution relationship you know strong relationship uh, of the emergency department with the medical staff of the hospital is, is an important part of that um, and so, you know, some of that is requires a little bit of, uh, of time and effort on the part of everybody to sit down and go, are we operating from the same playbook rather than just saying, all right, well, we're just going to get a bunch of people in here who can, uh, you know, meet these metrics and then everything will be fine. What do you think about, I mean, something that, that, um, that Sycamore is to some extent very interested in is, is, a you know, a, a future where, um, where more physicians, um, are more autonomous, um, are, and, and by that, I don't mean floaters that have no responsibility or connection. I, I, I more mean, um, physicians who are not, um, completely 100% beholden to a single employer, um, and, and have the, have, have more personal skin in the game uh, career-wise versus um, an environment where um, where y- your entire livelihood and your entire existence depends upon um, you maintaining your political status, your approval within an organization to a, specific, a single employer. How do you think, I mean, that's just a, that's a, that's a something that I think would be good for medicine, uh, would be good for individual emergency departments, would be good for patients. Um, do you agree with that? Do you think that that's, that's something that's worth striving for? Um, or do you think that that's kind of just a pipe dream? I think we're in, we're in uncharted territory a little bit with the changes that have happened uh, because of the COVID situation. But that the COVID thing, um, to some degree, just sort of opened up the the uh out, you know the situation that that everybody that was inside of it already kind of knew which was that the contract management group strategy which was to pitch metrics and go to you know hospitals that were challenged and say listen we're, we can do a, a better job um because you know we'll make meet all these metrics uh that was an older strategy and it was very successful. You know, a lot of groups went in that direction. And then there was a lot of fear, you know, that that the reimbursement was dropping. Uh, and so, you know, the local groups all sold out because they wanted to get out. Uh, and so then you had this, you know, growth of contract groups, which in my mind, I'm not sure what their end game was because reimbursement is dropping. At the end of the day, a hospital needs 
a functional emergency department. It's part of their requirement as a hospital. They got this department. So then you had COVID come along. And what COVID did, in addition to all the other crazy, dramatic things, is it threw out all the metrics. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, 40% 40, 40 of your volume went away. So that meant that throughput wasn't an issue anymore. You didn't have people waiting in the waiting room. Satisfaction changed because the people that came in, first of all, you're not having any visitors. And a lot of times satisfaction is poor because it's the visitors that are unsatisfied, not the patient. So satisfaction went away. You didn't have any visitors. The patients were sick as hell. Uh, so typically, if you're really, really sick, you're pretty satisfied if you survive and, and you do well. So uh, so all of a sudden, the, the metrics went out the window. So um, what we saw was emergency medicine to the core of what it's all about immediately, which was we're the safety net for the community. All of a sudden, all these people were getting sick. And I, you know, I'm in Connecticut. I was right next to New York. I mean, we were getting clobbered by this. And New York, you know, worse. <clears throat> and so what happened is it just focused attention right away on the fact that Emergency medicine is a critical part of the safety net uh, for the community, the hospital, and everybody involved. So you better make sure that you've got a functional emergency department. And it isn't about patient satisfaction and throughput times and all that. It's about who's there to take care of your family when you get COVID or you get, you're in a trauma. Or, you know, we all knew that. We knew that. Nobody else maybe paid attention to it or they were paying attention to other things on their spreadsheet. So then COVID blows that up. So then it's the answer is, okay, well, okay. So is there a better way to do stuff? Um, the answer is there's always a better way. The question is, what is it? How do you get to it? Um, the concept of having physicians be more autonomous there's some advantage to that. And that is uh, physicians like to be autonomous. That's one, one of the, the, the things you notice about high quality physicians is that they, you know, they have spent a lot of years training and sometimes a lot of money, you know, getting trained and they want to be able to utilize their training in an environment where they will be uh, rewarded for the skills that they have. I will tell you that most, most, high quality emergency physicians don't feel that their skill set involves throughput time and, and satisfaction. The, now, I, I'm not saying that they don't want to do that, but their job is to take care of the patient. And take care of the patient certainly means doing it in a timely fashion um, and doing it in a way in which everybody is satisfied. So I'm not suggesting that most docs don't like the metrics, but they don't like to be dr driven by the metrics. So if the department can't meet metrics because of built-in infrastructure, and you put the doctor in that environment and they don't have good metrics, they get very frustrated because it's not because they are they can't do their job. It, it's it's the environment prevents them from having the metrics you know that everybody wants them to have. Um, I'll steal uh, something from uh, from uh, another friend of mine named Jim Augustine, who's very well known in emergency medicine uh, at the Benchmarking Alliance. 
he he taught me something that's called good, fast, nice. He said, uh, best ER docs are good, fast, and nice. Really easy to be two out of the three. Very difficult to be all three. So you can be good and fast, maybe not so nice. You can be good and nice, maybe not so fast. Um, so, uh, you, you know, everybody should strive to be all three. There's no doubt that most ER physicians want to get to patients quickly, make them feel satisfied that they, you know, had a, a good in, uh, interaction, uh, and they certainly want to do a good job. But what ends up happening in the world of the contracts, particularly, you know, when there's challenges at the facility, is that the docs many times feel like, wow, you know, I I'm just being pushed to see people really quickly so that the metrics look good and it pushes me beyond what I I'm necessarily comfortable. So I'm getting pushed to be good and fast, or sorry, be uh, fast and nice. I can't be good. Uh, and you want you want people to be good, and you want them to do a you know what they think is is a decent job. Now, you know, having said that, there's a bell curve. There are some people, uh, I, and I here's a, an example. I know myself. I can be fast, and I'm not so nice, and I'm not, and I maybe I'm not so good. Uh, and so, if there's a challenge to push me to be faster, like you, if you drop me in an institution that has really bad wait times. The waiting room's always full of patients, and they say, you know, your job's just to crank through this, you know, backlog of patients as quick as possible. I I, I can do that. It's not very rewarding for me, but I, I can do that. But I can tell you that I'm not going to be as nice, and I'm not going to be as good. Well, I think there's also, uh, you know, as, as I'm as I'm hearing you talk about those dynamics, I, I think there's also a uh, clearly a, an aspect of, of, of job satisfaction, you know, that comes into play. And, um, and, and also I think uh, a, a big part of job satisfaction is feeling like a, you're making a difference, um, uh, B that you're getting better, you know, um, and, and, and your own stock is rising as a professional, you know, in your, in your field that you're actually becoming more valuable. Um, and, and also just, just personally, I think being challenged um, and, and and having that engagement where you're not just on autopilot, and I and I think one of the one of the um, it's hard to it's hard to have all of those things um, when um, when uh, when you're in the same organization, the same location all the time. Um, I, I I know personally for myself, I've I've changed jobs and changed job titles, um, a number of times and, um, a, a lot more probably than my, my peers. And, um, I've found, and, and in my current job, even just tackling new projects, you know, ha, you know, exploring new innovative, um, ideas, those things, um, raise my own personal, you know, satisfaction in, in the, in the job. And, um, and I, and I have to think that as a, a you know, our, our founder talks about how he's in a, he works in a pretty busy ER, um, but once a month he typically goes and spends, you know, a, a long weekend uh, working in a really small rural ER. And, and he, and he sees that as almost a, 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 a retreat or, or an opportunity to kind of recharge because he's, he's working in a very different environment, different people, um, different types of patients, um, 
and different problems. And, and he gets to bring um, his skills and his knowledge to bear there and really make a difference. And then he comes back with, with a new perspective as well and, and feels like he's, he's able to add more value to his, his, his normal job. I have had that situation before, before I, uh, you know, did the kind of turnaround director thing where, where I, I am pretty much located at one site. Uh, I did work for groups that had multiple sites and I'm doing that now. It, there's very clearly, um, a, 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 if I work a run of shifts at one place now and I'm, you know, I'm older, so my, 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 I'm not as, I don't have the energy that I did when I was younger. Uh, but you know, when I, when you're older a little bit, when you run, you do a, a long run of shifts at one place, it does tend to push you into the, you know, the zone of like, all right, you know, here we go again, particularly if it's the same shift and, and the places, you know, got this constant, you know, flow, uh, you just feel like, oh, you know, you're a cog in a, in a wheel, uh, in a machine. The, I, I, I mean, I liked personally, and this is, I guess, why one of the reasons I enjoy doing the locums, I, I like the rural environment. And again, it's back to that whole thing about being well-trained in that I feel uh, comfortable with my skill set um, in that I will uh, do things that uh, a rural ED uh, sometimes, you know, is, uh, you know, it's, uh, you get exposure to stuff that, uh, you're the only guy, and if there's nobody there, I when I was a resident, I used to moonlight in a place that only had orthopedic coverage one out of every three nights uh, or three days. And so, you know, when we had an orthopedic uh, situation during those uh, cases at the rural place, um, you, you know, you either handled it or you had to send the patient, you know, far away to be to be taken care of. And you have to know your you have to know your limits, but. Um, I, you know, at that point in that environment, if you could do a fracture reduction and get somebody, you know, aligned pretty well, uh, you gave them, you know, the ability to be able to go see an orthopod. They might have to drive two towns over, you know, uh, but at least you gave them what they needed emergently. Those, so those, those kind of rural uh, skill sets, uh, though, I think the rural hospitals, you know, would be better served if they could attract. Uh, physicians who had those skill sets, rather than saying, uh, you know, somebody who maybe, and and I I will tell you that the 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 uh, shortcoming in emergency medicine tends to be in the hands-on part of it, uh, and that's in orthopedic care, uh, maybe plastic surgery. Uh, trying to think of something else, uh, you know, procedural stuff that res that residents in emergency medicine are taught to do. Um, those things may not be taught to somebody who doesn't have that training. And if they're working in a, in a, a rural environment, they, you know, I don't know what they do if they run into a situation like that, tell the patient, well, you got to go to, a, you know, they transfer them or they tell the patient, you know, I can't do this. You need to go someplace else. Or uh, they bring, bring a rural consultant in to do something uh, that they, you know, could be done by the ER physician. And so that that's that's a skill for the hospital. So, I, you know, you talked about this, you know, working, we were talking, you know, working in a collaborative environment. If you're in a rural area, they got one surgeon and you got abscess on patient's back and it's big and, and it's not a small little abscess, needs to be open. So you got a doc, an ER doc says, well, I'm not comfortable opening that. So surgeon has to come in and do something, you know, maybe comes in at 10 o'clock at night right? You know, he's supposed to go to bed. He's got a case in the morning. Yeah. He'll come in, I guess, if he's a nice guy, 
but but he doesn't have to come in. So the you know you you, you want to be able to have an ER physician who says I'm going to open this app, I'll drain it, patient's going to do fine. Will you you know follow it in the morning in your office or you know two days or whatever it is? And the surgeon says thank you very much. You know I don't have to come in. Um, I had a case like this just recently. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, uh, it, it was something where it was a, pla a, a hand injury. Um, and I didn't really think that the plastic surgeon needed to come in to see the patient. And he, when I called him, I said, well, I just need you to follow this. I just want to see, do you agree with my judgment on this? And, you know, these days you can shoot pictures of stuff so people can really be alongside you. And he was like, yeah, that's a great, great plan. I don't have to come in, you know, I'll see it in the office. And it, that's a relatively rural hospital. This guy doesn't live very close. And, and I don't think he actually even would have come in. So, but the patient gets really good care. They get known that there's a collaborative relationship with a consultant. So they feel like they got really good care. Um, so that's a really successful interaction for a rural hospital. But you, the key is a well-trained emergency physician. I told you the story on the phone the other day about um, a you know thousand hundred thousand annual visit level one trauma center that was paying through the nose for locums coverage that we work with, and um, and the locum some of the locums companies they were contracted with were sending them. Um, one example they gave me was a, uh, a nephrologist um, who was who was working in this ED. And and ha had the paramedics, you know, intubating patients for him because they just weren't trained, you know, for 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 that kind of emergency medicine. So it's makes a big difference. That's an example of of bad bad uh, service on the part of the. They're not giving somebody whose skill set is knowledgeable. Uh, now I remember what the case was. This was a guy who drilled right through his finger with a uh, with a, sc a screw gun, put a screw into his finger. And so, so there's a lot of years of judgment on top of that, but, but it, it is the relationship and the interaction was very uh, collaborative and very smooth for everybody involved. Um, and so at a rural hospital, you want that. Um, and there are great docs out there doing all kinds of other things, but emergency medicine, you have to be trained to be able to cover everything. Got to deliver a baby in one room and then go into another, put a chest tube in a trauma patient, go intubate a COVID patient. That takes a skill set that uh, you have to be trained for. And uh, so those people, you know, those people, uh, are, you know, they're highly trained. They deserve to get reimbursed, you know, so for their training and, and expertise. Uh, but I think that the rural hospitals should almost do anything they can to get somebody like that to work at their place. 
I think everyone's so used to the world where, um, and this is where I think the independent piece comes into play, or at least a different model for 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 Sycamore. And and you know we're we're trying to enable facilities to contract directly with with physicians. We charge a we charge a flat transparent fee to do that. Um, if if facilities have the ability to contract directly with the physician without us, great. You know I mean that's that's that we're solving that problem where. You need help doing that, uh, but but there's certainly scenarios where you don't need help doing that. Uh, but the bottom line is that um, you're able to pay, you're able to, to, to allow, in, in our case, more than 90% of that budget to go straight to the physician um, versus um, you know not, not knowing. And and um, but but the bottom line to what you were saying is that you you do get what you pay for. Um, it's it's um, if you're paying for a quality doctor, you're going to get better results. And, and, and I think in locums, um, most are resigned to the idea that, that, you know, locums is a necessary evil. It's going to, you know, probably hurt us financially. It's going to, it's going to hurt the team. It's going to, it's not, you know, they the locums doctor is probably going to leave us worse than they found us. Um, and I think what you're describing is, is a scenario where um, that's not the case, where, where a, a locums provider can actually elevate the team, can actually imp- improve um, outcomes and metrics, and um, and uh, and that matters. And that that that's um, that, I, I think that's something that that's pretty counter um, intuitive. If you've been in medicine for very long, that's not something that you would anticipate being possible. There are clearly people out there that are very skilled at doing the locum thing. And, and to some degree, it, it's, uh, I don't, so it's a great question is, can you train somebody to be a great locum? The answer is yes, because everybody's trainable. But uh, it does have a lot to do with personality. So it, there is a personality type that um, probably is better uh, at being a locum. Uh, you have to you have to be able to uh, come into an environment where you really don't know anybody, and make everybody feel like you're you you know them, um, uh, and that that's a challenge. And so that's part of the, the skill set. Uh, having good good communication uh, and good knowledge base on what you're getting into, um, I think. You know, for locums, this is where uh, you know a motivated individual should be doing a lot of research on the facilities that they're going to and not just saying, you know, if you're a kind of locums that was a failed doc and you needed to go wherever you could to make money, then you don't really care where you go. But if you're a motivated, uh, highly trained doc, you should want to go someplace where you have a good chance of succeeding. So you should know, you know, and do your homework over, uh, all right, so I'm, I'm going to this facility in rural Kansas. What's my situation like? What's my, where's my local hospital, you know, referral center? What's the hospital's capabilities? Uh, what kind of uh, equipment and supplies do I have in, in the department? What's, you know, am I, go- am I getting into a nightmare? I mean, when I was a director and taking over facilities. That was a big part of it. You know, is this, is this place fixable? Um, and those those questions aren't always answerable easily. Some are. I mean, uh, the, you know, if you want to say, well, is a, a facility fixable? 
90% of that is, does the administration want to fix it? Are they willing to put the time and effort into fixing something? Most things that don't work, there's reasons they don't work. Uh, those reasons aren't simple. If they were simple, they would have been fixed by somebody at some point. I mean, that's a generalization, uh, but in general, it, it, you know, most things are that way for a reason. So if you're a locums doc and you're going to a place that has had three different contract groups in there in the last three years or six years or whatever, they're on two-year contracts, there's been a huge turnover of doctors. The nurses are upset and, and you know, they, they're frustrated. The administration doesn't get a sense of why they keep failing. And you go in there as a locum stock. Okay, you got to go in there knowing there's challenges. So, you know, I'm not saying it's a place you wouldn't go, but you should should have a good sense of okay, I'm going I'm stepping into a place that's got challenges. I think that that's that's part of the skill set of of this new breed of locums that we're talking about are are, are people who we're good at identifying those those challenges and good at um, um, at, at, at having a realistic expectation of of how to how what kind of impact they can make on those or not. We talked about this, and again, you know, again, my unique skill set. I always look at stuff. You know, yeah, you know, there's a locums issue because I'm a locums provider right now, uh, but there's also the director part of me and the you know the startup and turnaround part of me says. There's probably a, a locums like consultant sort of thing that goes in and tells the hospital, well, here's why you're failing or here's why you're having ongoing challenges and here's why you're not attracting docs, uh, your operations in this, that or the other thing. Um, and particularly the consulting groups that are out there, there are some big ones that do these. Like I said, the pro finding the problems aren't necessarily that difficult finding solutions that are realistic and doable is a different thing. You almost have to work there. So working in those environments, uh, you'll learn more working than, than, you know, look, reading the tea leaves. It comes back to that skin in the game piece. I mean, it's, it, it, it all of a sudden becomes less academic and, and more of a, of a experience, you know, um, uh, Learn, learn from experience, and 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 you're also thinking about it from a perspective of how how is this going to impact me personally as a clinician. The emergency department interacts with every part of the hospital, pretty much. There are certain areas, maybe very little interaction, but some a lot. So if there's a dysfunction that's built into that, so let's just for example say that the hospitalists don't want to admit anybody. It's a very difficult hospital to get a patient admitted. But that's going to make the emergency department uh, physician's job more difficult, no matter who they are. And so if that's the problem when you get there, and that's a simple problem to figure out, you just ask the existing physicians, is it easy to admit a patient um, to the hospital? And they go, no, it's pain in the neck. Why? Well, then you find out. So then you have to go to the hospital and say, well, we have a interface here that's not working smooth. That is causing friction in the department and slowing down operations. So once that is identified, then you have to say, is, is there a willingness on the part of the hospital to address that 
And that usually means having collaborative meetings and deciding what is the problem, figuring it out and solving it. And if you fix that, which I've done at a couple different sites, then all of a sudden the ER physicians find, wow, it's a little easier to admit the patients. I, uh, the flow in the department works. The workflow in the emergency department now is a little easier. The nurses find it. They're not backed up. And you know all this stuff kind of works. Now you've fixed a piece of dysfunction. And the ER physicians find, oh, my, it's a mo- more pleasant shift. I'm not fighting, you know, to get the patients admitted. Um, so those are, you know, little examples of how the hospital itself needs to be involved in that. What would you say to to um, a young, you know, um, let's say a young physician who's who's found themselves uh, burned out? found themselves questioning their career choice um, in emergency medicine. Maybe COVID um, um, has, has given them some, some stress about their own job security. What are the things that you would say to, to someone in that position? Um, what kind of encouragement would you have for someone like that today? I think everybody needs to admit and recognize that, that, Everyone is stressed, and and this is a stressful job. Uh, it's, since day one of my career, it's a stressful job outside of the department. Um, it's a very intense uh, uh, specialty. There's a lot of uh, human drama. Uh, you, you know, you I think most docs through their training learn how to wall that off a little bit. Um, I think it's very important to have outside support. Uh, I have a very supportive family. Um, you have to really uh, know yourself and your motivation, why, why you do what you do. Um, you have to focus on the individuals who come in and that you take care of as the most important part of what you do. And does that continue to give you um, uh, a feeling of uh, accomplishment and, and positivity? Uh, it is difficult uh, in that everybody gets very fixated on finances and making money and the business environment emergency medicine is challenging. Um, it isn't, isn't necessarily like other specialties where you're autonomous and have a lot of authority, uh, in the emergency department. Um, you know, you are, a tw- it's a 24 seven operation. So has to keep going. That's the challenge of being a director and that you don't, you can go home at night, but you're never really off. Uh, so directors are under a particular amount of stress because it just never really ever shuts off. Um, so for the young docs that are, you know, finding themselves and, and, and the COVID thing, and it's active now going in other parts of the country, we just went through our peak and boy, it was, I didn't have as bad cause I, I'm in a little bit more rural environment. Uh, it is a density driven disease, but some of my colleagues and friends of mine were just it was biblical. It was like stuff that you, you know, never thought could happen. Um, that's the world we live in. I don't think it's going away. Um, it was, uh, very challenging, uh, to function in the emergency department. And I think the world needs to recognize that, that, uh, we need help, uh, in our departments. We need infrastructure support. Uh, we need institutions, to bring in um, facility, you know, to, to make sure there's adequate 
uh, PPE for people taking care of patients so that you don't have to worry about going home to your families. There's a lot of challenges going on right now. So uh, it is a uh, unique time uh, in healthcare um, for the young docs who are feeling somewhat like, what, what did I get myself into? I think they should recognize that that's a normal emotion. That, you know, any, I think it would be abnormal if somebody said, hey, you know, I'm just, I, I don't feel any different after COVID than I felt before. Um, that's, that's somebody who's probably not in touch with their, with, with themselves. So, uh, I don't have, I don't have all the answers. I think one of the things that you guys are trying to do is unique. And that's why I think it's, uh, um, that's why I agreed to do this is I think, you know, giving people a little bit more control over their, uh, their, um, uh, careers may help, um, I think for hospitals, they need to understand what's going on in their departments and what's going on with the physicians that work there. So uh, I, I would hope that as a side effect of what you're trying to do, that there is more awareness that's growing um, am amongst the, the people who are, uh, create the environment in which an emergency physician works. There may be other specialties within the hospital where... Um, where they're a little bit more um, of an ivory tower, they're a little bit more of a um, a a, a, a uh, complete sort of unit. But 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 the emergency department is so deeply embedded in the overall operations of the hospital that it's really not not one to even if you are outsourcing you know to a contract management group, it's not one as a facility and as an operation, as, a, as an organization, uh, the hospital um, ought to um, pass the buck on completely. They, they need to be engaged in it. It's a great example of that. I think if, I, if, I, if I'm talking to a hospital administrator and I say, well, how do you be successful for the new millennium? You know, you got to know wh what your docs are thinking. So you don't, go into an RFP process and put out your contract with the idea, unless you want to replace everybody in the department, you don't really care. You should be going and talking to your docs and saying, what is it that you guys need? Do you want a contract group? If the, if the doc now, you know, I, I told you an example in my career where the hospital came to me and said, you know, we want, we want to keep you and your docs. What do you want? And we, we said, we want it outside help. So that's fine. If the docs need and want outside help and the hospital says, yeah, you know, we're going to go get a contract group, fine. That's great. Everybody should be happy. But if they go down to their department and they find out that nobody is happy, uh, then they should really examine where are they and what are they accomplishing? Because if you don't have physicians who are satisfied, um, it, then it's very difficult to run an effective department. I see you've got a you've got a, a pretty sweet uh, musical setup back there. I'm seeing a, a couple keyboards. Yeah, yeah. I saw a nice mic earlier. Yeah, is that a, is that a mic that I'm seeing right there? A little. Well, so yeah, I'm sitting in my uh, the looking going forward is the uh, the uh, digital part of this of the studio, and then behind me is uh, is the drum area, and then there's keyboards. So I run a little re uh, record label. I've got a one artist that I yeah that I've been recording. My wife is a singer, and uh, and I played for years. So we did a lot of stuff, and I kind of built up a studio. And then uh, 
recently I started uh, producing this young kid who we discovered local and uh, he's been out. Uh, he was doing great. And then uh, the COVID thing just wiped him out. So uh, it, it is, it is brutal. Uh, what's interesting is he's actually getting more uh, attention, even though uh, things are pretty dead. They're sort of coming back to him because he's such a good performer. That's awesome. What's his name? Let's give him a plug here. The band's called Matson. M A T T S O N. They're on. Uh, there's. Um, if you go on uh, most of the digital services, he's got uh, a couple songs on there. Um, uh, he's on Spotify and Apple Music and a couple others. Um, and if you go on, if you go to uh, Facebook, you can find his Facebook sites. Uh, it's called Official Matson. Official Official Matt. What's uh what what would you say his uh, his influences are? Or you know what what kind of genre do you place him in? So he's cr- he's a little bit cross genre. What's really interesting about him, uh, and they're better live than anything. So if you can get find online uh, like YouTube and stuff. Um, so uh, he started out, uh, I would say, little country, little pop. He's a little bit John Mayer, so he's kind of a guitar player guy. I, I actually kind of uh, put together his band, which is a, a little bit of multicultural type of band. His drummer and keyboard player, drummer particularly, found him first, a guy named Sam. He is a uh, gospel player, plays in church every uh, Sunday. Phenomenal, phenomenal music. All of them, all, all four of these kids are the top musicians. They, they all have unbelievable skills. Uh, Greg, more natural. Uh, Sam, also natural. Uh, and then the key, keyboard player plays uh, keyboards also in gospel uh, background in church. The bass player is a kid that was like a jazz, uh, you know, trained, went to school in New York City. I kind of recruited them all. Uh, it took about a year to, to mix and match all the parts. And then uh, I, they have just started to kind of develop the sound, which is a mixture of, uh, you know, blues, uh, a little country, a little gospel, a little R&B. And um, Greg's just got a great voice. It sounds like you're also playing a bit of a producer role as well. It's interesting. I did everything. So when you started, I was like, I recorded, I actually played with the band a couple times uh, whenever they didn't have a piece, uh, you know, like if the bass wasn't there, I, I play a little bit of everything. So it, it was really funny because it was so clear that I was not the guy, you know, here's these 25 year old guys on stage and then me. And uh, so I kind of aged myself out of the band. Uh, but then we we found Noah to play bass. I played keyboards for a while, but I'm not even close to being as good as these guys. So when he, when he really got, you know, these guys going and, and when they play they're they're, uh, they almost have a jam band feel to them. Uh, you know what? It, we had a, a fiddle player for a while. They, to me had a, a Dave Matthews feel to them. So it was kind of a, um, they jam a lot. And so they have this sound, but it's, it's really different given their background. So uh, it, it, when you look at them, they're, they're definitely a unique uh, crew of guys. And it's funny, one of the biggest issues when they started uh, getting successful and they were going out together touring uh, is that, you know, how well are they going to get along when they're uh, together? Because they're, 
So uh, Greg just called me and said he got a gig booked for July 4th in Chicago. Two gigs. Yeah. So they're piling in a, a car and driving to Chicago. Uh, so we'll see how well that goes. I used to uh, I used to book concerts and I, I booked a few tours for some bands and, and did some management and a little bit of uh, record label stuff. So I kind of dabbled in that world for, for a, a season. I have two friends that are in the business. Um, and so I sent Greg to California to one of my friends who's he runs um, a big uh, country club there, the, you know, like a 1500 seat place. It's actually subsequently closed. They, the COVID thing wiped out the whole place. But anyway, um, Greg uh, got up on stage, did a set and a, a booker called me from there and said, I want to work with, uh, with Greg and his name's Greg too. And so he's been booking us uh, from the West coast, but he's been booking the Northeast. Um, and he just got uh, another agency in LA uh, interested uh, in sort of absorbing his business. So Greg's now got a, yeah. So that's where that Chicago. There's a lot of that kind of thing, especially in, in the booking agency world. It seems that, that there's you know, boutique agencies that pop up all the time. And then the, the slightly bigger ones, you know, buy them and buy their rosters. Well, the interesting part of Greg's, um, he had this niche. Cause I mean, there's not like the country isn't huge in the Northeast. So there was this circuit that he was doing that Greg was playing and Greg does two things. He does like a looping show. That's just him. And he actually does really well with that. And then the full band, the full band's a pain in the neck, obviously, cause you got to, it's a bigger gig. Um, it's, you know, we got to have more, uh, uh, reimbursement to, to, to be able to afford to get all those guys someplace. So, so those gigs were only coming maybe a couple of months, you know, a couple of months, but they were doing really well in the, you know, in these, in the clubs like uh, New Hampshire, they were doing really well. Uh, Boston, uh, they were playing some in Boston, some out on the Cape, but this um, agency from LA has a lot of different styles. And I guess they, they wanted a little bit more country. So that's where they absorbed uh, the, the local uh, or Greg's company. And, uh, and so uh, we think that might be helpful to us because Greg, uh, my Greg's music is is kind of a crossover. Um, he's got a little, you know, little EDM dance beats in it. And like if you go to Spotify, the song that's got the most attention was a little bit more country. We got on a, a playlist. We don't know how. Um, and he got a lot of hits off of that. That was called uh, Life Ain't Fair. It's a cool song. It's a little more country. But then he did these four songs that have really different feels to them. You know, they're one of them's uh, kind of poppy. Um, one of them's even sounds a little bit like uh, Prince. So, yeah, so he crossed over a lot of different um, genres. And, you know, previously, I think that was a problem for bands. But but I think given uh, where we were before COVID anyway, that having different genres was kind of a cool thing. Um, you know, Gr Greg doesn't seem to, nothing's phasing him. He's like, he thinks, you know, it's just come a matter of time. He's going to be back out there. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Dr. Goldwagon. And, uh, and I look forward to, to doing something like this again. I think it's helpful and, and, um, 
encouraging, you know, to, to both administrators and a physician. So I appreciate your willingness to do it with us. No problem. It was fun. If you love Branch Out by Sycamore Podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review for us. Until next time.